The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 50. We are in the third of four servant songs, that is, poetic units in Isaiah's book that are either directly about the, sa- the servant Savior or proclaimed by him. Now, when I say they're proclaimed by, them, by him and that they are in first person, what, what I'm seeing is that Isaiah is actually... He's writing these words, but he's not writing them about himself, and he's not writing them about the nation of Israel. He is, he's writing them down prophetically, putting words in Jesus' mouth. That Jesus, when he comes, then is able to reach back and identify, that was about me, and these are my words. That this is part of the way that we meet Jesus in the Old Testament is actually getting first-person declarations as if he was back there with Isaiah speaking these words. So they're anticipating the Christ. Now here we are in Isaiah 50. And the unit that we're looking at right now is verses 4 through 11. And there's, there's a frame here there's the words of the, of the servant Savior himself, and then there's this brief additional tag at the end. The servant declares his commitment to his own mission of mercy and righteousness. So he has a dual mission, one to care for the broken and the other to be perfectly obedient to his father. And then at the end, there's implications for you and I, and for those who don't want to listen to him. He's a teacher, and some will listen and some won't listen. And so this unpacks the implications. Now, in the middle, you've got this, these three parts. And the center comes in verse 7. So just look at verse 7 for a second, where it says, Therefore... Now, I'm understanding the therefore, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. That these therefores are drawing an inference from two reasons why he's able to make this declaration in the beginning of the passage, and then he adds two more reasons underneath it. So, Initial reasons for the servant's commitment to his mission of mercy and righteousness. Further reasons for the servant's commitment to a uh, a mission of mercy and righteousness. Now, last week we looked at verses 4 through 7a. And the first reason why he says, I'm not going to be disgraced. I'm not going to grow discouraged, but I've set my face like flint, and I know that I won't be put to shame. The first reason I know that is because the Lord has equipped me to teach in a way that sustains the weary. Look at verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, the tongue of a disciple, 
that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. When does God equip him? Morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So God has equipped me to teach in a way that sustains the weary, and because of that, I am committed to my mission. Second reason, verses 5 through 7a. Yahweh has empowered him to obey even through suffering, and Yahweh is his help. Look at verse 5. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. In verse 4, his ear was opened so that he could actually understand who God was, so that he could instead, in turn, teach others. But now, his hearing is specifically related to his obedience. He's opened my ears so that I I can spiritually hear him and it's it's awakening, altering my heart and it's moving me to obey. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who would strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And this is our suffering servant Savior. We saw that, that these very realities, a back that is struck, a beard that's ripped out, the, this is anticipating the very passion of the Christ as he moved to the cross on our behalf. He says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, and the Lord helps me. So he's declaring something that God has done, predictively, anticipating as if it had already happened. He's empowered me to obey, even through suffering. I will not rebel. I will set my face ahead and keep persevering. As we're going to find out in Isaiah 53, it's for the joy set before him that he endures this suffering. There's a joy out there, and we're going to see what it is when we get to Isaiah 53. But he endures, and then he just declares Blankly, the Lord is my help. And because of these two reasons, therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And then I think he goes on to give us two more reasons. Let's read from that point forward. Verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So, two further reasons, and we're going to unpack them this morning. And then we get to the implications. Who among you fears the Lord? And obeys the voice of the one who's been talking. Obeys the voice of the servant. Now, well, I'll I'll just read the ESV as it is. I'm going to alter translation here shortly, but I'll read it as is. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches... Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Two implications. 
And we're going to unpack those shortly. So we begin with the therefore statement, the declaration of the servant's commitment to his mission of mercy and righteousness. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Because of what God has done on my behalf, empowering me for my mission to teach, and because of what God has done in my half, on my behalf, giving me a passion to obey, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. So, I'm not certain whether we're looking at something pointed or we're looking at something that is rock solid. But there's a sense in which he will not be moved from what God's called him to. The mission is absolutely clear. And we can be very grateful for that because with all the persecution and all the suffering that Christ endured, he didn't stop. Had he stopped, you and I would not be enjoying the mercy we have today. But because he didn't stop, because he obeyed all the way and knew that he would not be put to shame, he persevered all the way to the end. Here's what we read in Isaiah 42. It says, He will not grow faint, this servant Savior. He will not be discouraged until he's established justice. In the earth. Now we've got an already but not yet reality. At one level, if we confess our sins, He is right now already faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And He established it at the, at the cross. He's been working justice for us. It's not just new mercy at dawn, great is thy faithfulness. Fresh mercy, morning by morning. That mercy is equaled by justice, so that God can bestow mercy on us every single morning because every single morning He's reminding Himself that He has already declared us right because He punished His Son, morning by morning by morning. Fresh mercy coming to us because fresh justice is being worked over us. He is the propitiation, the the instrument by which God's wrath is fully turned away from us. And every single morning when the sun rises, we can be reminded of such fresh justice. And yet there's still those who have not heard, for whom He is going to still work that past justice of the cross on their behalf. Some of our loved ones, we, we plead with God that He would be working justice on their behalf not in the sense that they will receive His wrath, but rather that Christ might be willing to receive God's wrath on their behalf and that they would be saved. But there's another reality of His establishing justice on the earth, and that is that those who remain against God, whose hearts are lastingly hostile to Him, who fail to trust and obey, His justice will come in the day of the Lord. And on that day, he will destroy all of his enemies. Justice. So, at one level, he has worked. And at another level, this is still waiting to see its full result. 
But it says the coastlands are, are longing, longing to hear his law. Hear that. He's a teacher. And his laws are not designed to burden. His laws are designed to sustain the weary. Make disciples, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And so we, we have this, this sense in our soul that if we've tasted and seen that God is good, if we've tasted and seen that Jesus is the one that we want to follow, we're ready to listen. We're ready to follow. We're longing to hear what the law of Christ looks like. I said, I've, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. When we were in Isaiah 49.4, we, we got this sense that Okay, this has got to be quite the the mission that this servant savior is going to be on. So much so that he's going to feel like everything I'm doing is going nowhere. In his humanness, he felt that, it says. Everyone's rejecting me. I've come to give life. They want to remain in death. I've come to bring light and they're very content to live in the darkness. I feel like I'm laboring in vain, and yet, surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense is with my God. He will judge rightly in the end. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Look at our text. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. Even though his back will be struck, his cheeks will be ripped apart as the beard is separated from its skin. He knew that the time was drawing near, and as it drew near, he set his face more firmly upon Jerusalem where it would all happen. He set his face on Jerusalem. He sent messengers, you go ahead, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem where the culmination of his earthly existence would happen. And I think... We're supposed to see echoes of our text. This is who he was. This is what he came to do. He wouldn't get distracted. It's not that he didn't love the Samaritans. It's that he could love them most by keeping on going all the way to the cross. So that life could be secured for them. Rather than an eternity of separation from God. And he had this singular vision. And Isaiah was already anticipating it. Does that speak to the expectation? I mean, this is maybe a stretch. The expectation of the people in anticipation of a Messiah was a conquering king, but his face was set up toward Jerusalem, toward the ultimate sacrifice. Is that why people didn't receive him? I mean, I'm not sure I understand the, the because, and I'm wondering if that explains it. I, th- I think the because is, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't willing to stick around with them. And because he wasn't willing, and he's the miracle worker, he's the healer, he's the teacher. He's not willing to stick around with them because he had a different mission 
that included their salvation. And, but, but with respect to your question, I mean, even the disciples are struggling deeply, as we saw last week, to understand that His move toward triumph would only be through tribulation. They, they didn't want to see that, that, that movement through the cross to His crown. Rather, just take the crown. And, and yet, He had to go this route in order to appease the wrath of God. In order for justice to actually be worked, He had to go this route. So, that's what we get. That's the declaration. I think it's the hinge for this entire passage. Because God has equipped me with what I need to do in order to sustain weary people, because He's motivated me to obey, even through intense suffering, therefore, I am not disgraced. And and the word is going out through the through the nations, through this book, declaring we have a Savior who would not be disgraced, a Savior who was willing to push Himself all the way through the suffering in order to fulfill the mission of His God. And what was, what was moving Him? We're going to see, as I said in Isaiah 53, there was something in front. But this text is not looking at future grace. This text is grounding his commitment in past grace. What God had already done for him. God has equipped me. God has motivated me. This is what was on the mind of Christ while he's carrying out his mission. While he's experiencing those who hated him. He's looking backwards and then we'll see he's also looking forwards. But this is focused on past grace. And in our identification with Christ, as we carry our own cross, being in Christ holy, all of a sudden the equipping that was being done on his behalf is equipping that is being done for us. The motivating, the reorienting of his heart To be willing to persevere in faith in His God, even through suffering, is what happens to us as we get into Christ. And now there's two more reasons that are supplied. So, further reasons for the servant's commitment to his mission of mercy and righteousness. He who vindicates me is near. The nearness of the servant's judicial advocate supplies boldness to invite any accusers to approach. Notice the the judgment, legal courtroom type context, the way that he talks. He who vindicates me, very literally, the one who declares me righteous, That would have been a very legitimate translation, and it sets the stage for how the New Testament talks about what Christ is doing. Perfectly righteous in order that He might account us, in spite of who we were, as righteous. His perfect obedience counted for us all of our sin being put onto Him. The text here, very literally, it says, "...the one who declares me righteous is near." And Jesus' righteousness is absolutely different than our righteousness. 
Because his righteousness is a declaration of what really is, whereas our righteousness is a declaration of what is not. He truly was righteous, and God recognizes his righteousness and declares it to be what it was. For us, we are not righteous. We bring nothing to the table. And yet God, through faith in his Son, attributes to us what is not real. It all comes to us by faith. But for Jesus, the one who declared him righteous, it was on the basis of an authentic, perfect dependence on his God. A perfect life of living for God's glory in every situation. Righteousness is about right order in reality. Righteousness is about God's glory being at the top, because that's how right order is understood. So righteousness is creational in that when God made the world, He established it with right order, wherein He was the one who got to sit down on the seventh day on the throne at peace with this whole world. Right order existed at creation. But righteousness is also ethical in that it relates to a passion among humans to align with God's definition of right order wherein He is shown supreme. He is glorified at the top. That's what right order is. That's what righteousness is. And it's because we fall short of living for God's glory that none of us are righteous except one. He perfectly aligned with God's definitions of right order. He perfectly lived for the glory of God all the time. From the morning until the evening, he was living for the glory of God. And so God was able to look at him and declare him right. The one who vindicates me, the one who declares me righteous is near. And because of that, I will not be put to shame. Because of that, I will push ahead all the way to the end. Now notice... When Jesus came to earth, there were many people who accused him. But Pilate looked at him and said, I don't see anything worthy of death here. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I I find no guilt in this man. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently, accusing him, guilty, guilty, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. But after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Now, it's not only Pilate, there's, there's multiple others who declare Jesus' absolute in- innocence. That is, his perfect rightness. Jesus himself, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why aren't you believing me? Go ahead, look into my life. Come on, accusers, enter into the courtroom before the great judge. If you can pinpoint something where I have indeed blasphemed, prove it. Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. The thief at the cross, we indeed justly, we indeed justly, we indeed, there, we are condemned justly. There's where Dr. Nacelli, he's like, stop typing your verses, just 
Copy and paste them, copy and paste them. Sorry, sorry, Dr. Nacelli. So, we indeed are condemned justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing, nothing wrong. How about Judas? When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I- I've sinned by betraying, an in- by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. But ultimately, it depends little about what people think. Jesus' statement, that one matters. What does God think about Christ? Through the resurrection, God vindicated Christ. That is... For every other person in human history, death holds them down. Because Jesus rose, it was, the language is, vindication. That indeed, he himself, though he bore our sins on the tree, he himself was innocent and death could not hold sway over him. And because of that, there's good news for us. Through the resurrection, what is God doing? He is Declaring Jesus righteous so that God can now count us righteous in him. The text says, the one who declares me righteous is near. And there's hope in that. If the judge is on your side and you know it for certain, you're willing to stand in the docket and let anyone come up and declare you guilty. The judge knows the truth. Here's what we see in Isaiah. I saw this this morning. I don't know if my wife heard me, but I was down in my study, and I was just like, "Woo!" <laughs> That's what I did, and I'm like, got to be quiet. So I just saw it, and I was like, this is, God just let the word speak to my soul, and it was exciting. Here's what we see in Isaiah. Number one is a promise from our God. Did you hear it? No, Okay. Isaiah 45, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come, shall, uh, I did it again, shall all come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. They're going to come to this righteous God. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That's a promise. Now, is that saying that all Israel is going to be saved? All ethnic Israelites are going to be saved? It says, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified. Now, within the book of Isaiah, we have to say, okay, offspring of Israel. Who's Israel? The servant person is Israel. He said to me, you, my servant Savior, You are Israel in whom I will be glorified. It's too light a thing, Israel, my servant, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. You're my servant, Israel. Israel the person. And it's too light a thing that you would redeem Israel the people. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here it said, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified. Who's Israel? 
You are my servant Israel. God will justify Israel the person. He who vindicates me, he who declares me righteous is near. And then beautifully, out of the anguish of the servant Savior's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's the one who's already been declared right, he's the servant Savior, by his knowledge, he knows what's going on, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, what I should have done is include verse 10 in that passage. So if you want to just look at it, here's where we were. All the offspring of Israel shall be justified. Within Isaiah, Christ is Israel. And then it says in verse Isaiah 53.10, It was the will of the Lord to crush this servant Savior. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. The very servant Savior who dies has offspring. And he will account He, as the righteous one, will account his offspring righteous. So how broad are the offspring? Jesus never had children of a physical wife, but he does have a bride called Jerusalem and gathered to Jerusalem as part of the same family are not only ethnic Israelites we've seen, but those from the nations leading them back What do we see elsewhere? What we're looking at right now is this passage is is the verse that specifically says, He who declares me righteous is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. What the law was powerless to do, Paul says in Romans 8, weakened as it was by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending His Son. Notice that Jesus is already the Son of God, of the eternal Trinity, before He becomes the Son of God of salvation history. He is God the Son, and He is sent. He is sent. But then it says here, He was declared to be the Son of God in power at the resurrection. What we have to recognize here is it's not that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, or rather, He wasn't God the Son. But when He enters into space and time, He takes on a human role, and He was destined to be the King, but He was not yet the King. The wise guys came from the east looking for the king of the Jews. But even a child who is born heir to the throne does not yet take the throne until the Matthew 28 happens and he rises from the dead. And it's at that point that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now it's happened. I, have, I was heir to the throne and now I've been declared or I think probably better appointed. Appointed to be the son of God in power. The very power that 
12 verses later, he's going to say, the gospel is the power of God. That's what we're talking about. It's something that is intimately connected to the resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God in power at the resurrection of the dead. Philippians chapter 2. He obeyed completely all the way to the cross, all the way to death, death on a cross. Now God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. He didn't have the name before it. Now he is seated on the throne. He has ascended to God on high and he's seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth. And it happened at the resurrection. He was recognized to be who he was at the resurrection. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many are made righteous. That's what's at stake. Someone who is perfectly obedient perfectly righteous before his God. That's how Scripture talks about him. He was manifested in the flesh. He came as a man in the body. He was vindicated by the Spirit through his resurrection. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That just captures his entire life. The whole life of Christ, 33 years, packaged in that one little verse. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. That's what we're talking about. He was the very one who vindicates me is near. He committed no sin. Peter just says it straight up. He committed zero sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued and trusting. I'm looking to you, Father. I'm looking to you, Father. Entrusting himself to one who judges justly. This morning we held a cup and a piece of bread in our hand celebrating a God who judges justly. If you're looking at to yourself to celebrate that, you're going to be in grave danger. But if your eyes were able to turn away from yourself in hope, Paul condemns those who would take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? I've got to be worthy enough? No, the only worthy manner of partaking of the Lord's Supper is looking outside of yourself to the only servant Savior. Recognizing your desperate need and His absolute sufficiency. And in that context, we can celebrate the justness of God even though we should have been condemned by His mercy, He put all of His wrath on the righteous one so that we in turn could be counted righteous. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. I bet many of you already this morning, before you got out the door, especially if you have young children, it probably showed itself. Ugliness of soul. And we have an advocate. An advocate. And he's the type of advocate that goes before the great judge and the judge always listens to him. His arguments are impeccable. Look at me, Father. I died on her behalf. Look at me, Father. I stood in his place. 
We have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? He's Jesus, the Messiah, the righteous one. He is the perfect wrath appeaser. That's what propitiation is. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the world. So, number one, or the third reason why he is committed to his mission and will not be disgraced is because the one who judges justly and has already declared me righteous is near. He's near me, and therefore I need not grow weary in well-doing. Final reason, 50 verse 9, the reality of Yahweh's help and this servant Savior's innocence supplies certainty that all accusations, all accusers will fall away. Verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who is it to condemn? Who can declare me guilty? Zero. No one. You Israel, my servant, whom I called from the farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's declaring this over a people who will be redeemed by the righteous one. The promise given to Israel, the nation, becomes Jesus's. He's representing them. And if God was declaring his faithfulness to a people, his faithfulness was certain for the person. What he declares is, I will help you. I have chosen you. Behold, the sovereign Yahweh helps me. So who will declare me guilty? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I have chosen you. That's the word for election. I will help you. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The question in our text is, who will declare me guilty? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? God won't condemn us because he condemned the Son. Christ Jesus is the one who died. But more than that, he was raised and by that declared to be righteous. And so God's looking through him on our behalf and no accusations of anyone else can stand in the courtroom of God. None. There's such hope here. No level of wickedness is too great for the cross to overcome. None. Questions? Gene. People weren't listening. Their ears were not hearing and so on. But at this time, did they hear some of these beautiful promises? Mm. Even though they were in rebellion, did they say, oh, it's covered, I'll be okay, God is going to... So, we've seen that these people are deaf and blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, but did any of them 
like respond to these beautiful promises? Or even claim them in, uh, you know, claim, claim the good part without listening to the bad or something? The... I mean, I like the, I like the good part. I don't want to hear I don't hear, but I'm sure going to hear that I'm not condemned. The... Well, Isaiah, very quickly, we're going to see it right now, when he addresses the implications, he's going to clarify what the conditions are and for enjoying these, these promises. And what we do see throughout the prophets is there is a serious um, sense that we've, got king da- we've still got a king on the throne in the line of David. That's the one through whom God promised everything. His presence is still in our midst. Look, we've got the temple. We've got the word of God. None of the other nations have the word. We've got the word, we've got the king, we've got the presence. All is well. Jeremiah tackles those three things head on in order to identify you can't claim the promises without God dependence. Peace, peace, but there is no peace. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, all is well. We've got the temple right here. And Babylon is just on the other side of the hill, ready to destroy them because their hearts were far from God. So, yes, there is something about the promises that is awakening them, but they're not surrendering their lives. You could almost declare this battle between the righteous one and the self-righteous ones. And I think about that in terms of Job and his friends who were so quick to be self-righteous and Job declaring his righteousness, you know, I mean, wow, I mean, that's what's happening, mm-hmm. it seems like. I, I don't know that that's helpful, but that's, anyway, there you go. The, self, the self-righteous element, um, well, let's just see it. It's, that's exactly what we see in the text. Let's just look at these implications as we bring this to an end. The last two verses, there's two sides The implications, number one, is a charge for all God-fearers who heed the servant's teaching to trust and rely on God. Now, if you've got my hand out, you'll see that just based on the way the Hebrew text is given, that the ESV translators actually altered some things in order to do what they thought was to make, have it make sense. I just want to leave the Hebrew and I think I can have it make perfect sense. Though I can understand why the ESV translators struggled, and you'll probably feel it too. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Instead of seeing a question mark at that point, I put a comma. Who walks in darkness and has no light? Question mark. Who among you is listening to the voice of the servant? Who will obey the very one who is not walking in the light but walking in the darkness? And so then we would have to say, huh, how did the servant Savior walk in darkness when we see that he himself is guiltless? That's already been declared. And, but, but it seems to me it may be anticipation of how the one who could be called God with us, the one who enters into a world of darkness, Galilee of the Gentiles living in darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. He enters into this world of darkness. 
And he fully bears the world of darkness. All the curse is going to be put on him. Yet you will, will you look at him as one to follow or not? That's what I think the text is saying. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him who obeys, who hears, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God rather than on himself. The servant is the teacher. That's what we just saw. Do you hear the voice of your servant? Do you obey the voice of your teacher? In verse 4, the Lord has given me the tongue as those who are taught that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. So are you willing to be a follower? If you're going to rely on God and trust in God, it's going to demand that you follow the Savior wherever he says to go. He's going to be teaching, are you willing to follow? My servant will not grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice in the earth. The coastlands are waiting for his law, waiting for his instruction. Are you among those who are ready to hear? Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe what he's commanded. Number one point that I'm seeing here, the servant is a teacher. Are you one of his students? So we're considering implications to what he's committed to. And the question is, are you one of his students? If you are, you're going to be dependent on God. You're going to be fearing the Lord. This isn't about self-reliance. No, he's entering into the darkness where all of us live. He's fully identifying with our darkness and yet calling us to follow him even when it seems as though there may not be light around. The servant dwelt in the dark where people were in order to lead them to the light. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for this generation, who considered that he, he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's as dark as it gets, death. And he was dwelling in the dark on behalf of others that he might lead them to light. For our sake, he made him to be sin. That's as dark as it gets. So I'm proposing that it seems as though that we may have here a picture of Jesus as the teacher and the call to follow him in the midst of the dark. Where do I go? What do I do? The answer, rely on God as he teaches you through his servant Savior, even though you're still in the dark, even though the curse is still all around, even though it's absolutely abounding and there's sinful people and sinful practices that are everywhere. That was the world that Jesus entered into, and he did it on our behalf. He fully identified with us in our weakness. Indeed, he fully took on himself our sin. Lynn. I'm just going to say that the, my NIV here says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Question mark. And then it says, Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And that's almost like the ESV. 
No, I'm, I'm changing it. <laughs> I'm changing it. And that's all what I can do. So my responsibility is to teach what I think the Word of God says. And here, sadly, I've got to alter the English translation text to make it, make it work with what I think it's saying. But what it, even what the ESV and the NIV are saying is still true. Notice, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. So the question is, as Jesus enters into our dark world, was he walking around in the light or was he walking around in the dark? He was operating as a light, and yet he himself was walking in the dark, trusting fully his Father. Not relying on anything of himself, simply obeying the word of God and then we're called to follow him. And as we do, that is our light. But this text is talking about the incoming of Christ. Matthew 4.16 quotes it and says, why did Jesus start ministering up in Galilee? Why did, that, why did he make that his home? It was in order to fulfill Isaiah when he said, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, namely the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The very two, two, first two places that the Assyrians, when they overcame the northern kingdom, bringing darkness over the land, those were the first two tribes that they destroyed. And those are the first two places that Jesus entered in in order to bring light. And yet he himself, what I'm proposing, entered in to deep darkness in order to bring light to others. But that's where he was dwelling that's where he was existing. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you, my servant Savior, as a light for the nations. To open up the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who are in darkness. He enters right into the darkness. For him to get them out of the prison means he has to go into where they are. That's the darkness that he enters into. And the call is, will you follow me out? Will you follow me out? That's the first implication. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So notice the last part of verse 10. It's not only that the servant Savior is a teacher who leads those out in darkness toward light. The call is, here's the ultimate call of this. So if you find yourself in the darkness, in need of help, will you fear and obey? That is, will you trust and rely on this servant Savior? This is about dependence. This is the opposite of self-reliance. This isn't about self-righteousness. This is about I'm a beggar who've been in prison. I've been in the darkness and I need someone to enter in and bind up the strong man on my behalf and pull me out into the light. I need someone else to save me because I can't save myself. And Isaiah is saying, in light of the servant's mission, will you be one who listens and will you be one who follows? Those were the two elements of the servant that he first said. God's opened up my ear so that I know how to be a good teacher and God's opened up my ear so that I will be a good obeyer. So as Jesus, who's been instructed himself, teaches, will we in turn become good learners 
And it's Jesus who has his own ear opened, his own ear opened up so that now he's an obeyer. He's following his father. Will we follow Christ? That's the dependent element. And here the language is trust and rely. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. That's the Exodus song out of Exodus 15. And when we were in Isaiah 12, we saw that the people who will be following the Messiah in his day, in the second Exodus, a new Exodus, but this time not away from Pharaoh, but away from sin, out of the, the prison that Satan has enslaved them, that serpent, dragon of old, Isaiah 27.1. The prison that he's bound people in, all that darkness. They'll be singing this song, it says, on the heels of the great exodus. This movement toward the coastlands waiting to hear his law. This movement toward the new Jerusalem to identify with the bride of the Lamb. God is my salvation. I will trust him. That's what our text is calling for. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord your God, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. We see this. This is Isaiah 26. Isaiah 25 is when it declares, The day is coming when death will be no more. And we will say, Behold, our God, He has come for us. Behold, our Savior has come. And He's come in the person of His Son. And they will sing in that day perfect peace for those who trust in God. So will you be among them? The implication of Jesus saying, I'm committed, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I will push all the way to the end. If he's willing to follow God all the way to the end, will you be behind him, leading us out of darkness? That's the, the, the question that this text is raising. But there's another option. Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore iniquity shall be to you. That's what we're going to see in our text. Those who trust in something other than God, who trust in the ways of man, they'll be filled with sin and all that accompanies it. But in returning and rest, you'll be saved in quietness and trust that will be your strength. Look at verse 11. Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. So they're living in the night. And the question is, what will you do? Will you rely on one who's still walking in the darkness, but trust him to lead you out of the darkness? Or are you going to be one who builds your own lamp in order to get out on your own? Behold all of you who kindle a fire on your own, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Go ahead, walk by the light of your fire. It'll lead you to the grave. Walk by the light of the torches that you have kindled in contrast to the light that God supplies. This you have from my hand. It's your judgment and you shall lie down in torment. A charge for all who rely on themselves and not on God to continue in their way all the way to destruction. Self-reliance, God-reliance. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. 
So the text lays out this beautiful picture of, the, of a suffering Christ. And the challenge is knowing, okay, if, if he's calling me to follow, he's the teacher, and if he's walking in a path of suffering, and I'm following him, who himself is having to walk in a journey of darkness, and that's how God defines light, following him, then what we have to know is that in answering the call to follow, he's going to lead us most likely through paths of significant suffering. His triumph comes through tribulation. Our triumph comes through tribulation. He carried a cross, we're called to carry our cross. Before he experienced resurrection, he had to die. And we as the body of Christ, the body of Christ, should expect that before we experience our resurrection, we will have to die. Daily dying to self-pursuits, daily dying to self-righteousness, daily dying to self-reliance. In order that we as it says at the end of verse 10, might trust in the name of the Lord and rely on our God. And this is not easy. But it's also hopeful because we keep messing up and His mercy is so real. We find ourselves extremely weak. He is always extremely strong. So may we trust Him. Father God, Please be our help. Thank you for your faithfulness. How desperately we need, we need this servant Savior. We praise you that he is one who sustains with a word those who are weary. Sustain those in this room, I pray. He is one who is committed to be perfectly righteous, not in and of himself, but who is simply dependent on his God, living for your glory, and he's calling us to follow, to trust all that he would supply. Make us those kind of people. Please, Jesus, this is a dark world. There is no light. And we need, we need to know you're near. And just as you've indicated your son through him, you vindicate us. We celebrate that you can be 100% for us today. Come into our brokenness. Come into our failure and receive us. We, we just, right now, open up our hands to you and want to receive help. We trust you. We want to rely on you. Put us where we need to be, fighting our self-reliance, not carrying and shaping our own torches of light to lead us out of darkness, but trusting in you even when life doesn't make sense, trusting in you when we don't know where to, else to turn, Give us words of promise and words of command that keep us going, resting in knowing that you have declared us right through your righteous Son. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Duroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.com.
www.ucla.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.